You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Um, Good morning, Redemption. If you are new here, my name is Jordan. I am the preacher in residence here at Redemption Church, um, and I'm excited excited to be here this morning. Um, This week, my husband and I, Kendrick, we finished a really big thing And that is, we finally finished the Ted Lasso series, which I just like remember the early days of the pandemic, and it was dark, and our medicine was Ted Lasso, and we'd like time when we would put the episodes on, because it like just brought so much light into our lives. And it just finished, the series finished, um, I don't even know when, we just finished it. There's three seasons, um, and it's done. But because of that, I... Um, have been thinking back to the first um, first season. There's this episode that, like, I'm a little a little triggered by, but it's also beautiful. Um, and because it, it's because it reminds me of a story uh, about about Kendrick and I when we were first meeting. And so back in 2012, um, we are both freshmen in college, and we were both also uh, playing soccer uh, for the soccer team. So we're up there at the beginning of August, um, before school starts, and we're doing preseason and all the two-a-days and stuff, and we're meeting everyone, and we meet each other. And one of the first things that we did when we hung out was we um, played ping pong. And if, I mean, if, like, you know almost anything about us, you know that we're very competitive. It's, like, gross competitive. Like, there's games we can't play with friends because it's, like, ugly. Um, and, I mean, it was worse when we were 18. Like, our egos were bigger. We were playing soccer. Like, it was a big deal for us to win. And so I think I'm a pretty good ping pong player. Uh, and so I start playing ping pong against Kendrick, and we're playing, and I'm talking trash, because I'm winning by a, little, by a little bit, but I'm playing well, feeling really good about myself, and I don't know, we get halfway through the game, I'm probably up by like four or five points, I'm like, I'm going to beat this guy, this is amazing, he thinks he's really good, and he looks at me, and he just takes the paddle and goes... and switches it to his dominant hand and then whoops me and I was just I to this day I knew I was going to marry him I said oh my gosh the Lord spoke um but I will I just like it's such a prominent memory in my brain about first meeting him and in the first season of Ted Lasso there's kind of a similar story in that that, that uh, plays out and in this story 
the antagonist of the show, Rupert, is at a pub playing darts, and Ted goes up to him, sees that he's playing darts, throws a couple of, uh, uh, of darts, and they're decent shots, and immediately, Rupert, who has, throughout the season, just criticized Ted the whole time, he's like, hey, do you want to play a game of darts? And they put, like, a big wager down, and Ted goes, okay, sure, why not? Ted also immediately goes, I forgot that I was left-handed, switches the dart from his right to left hand, proceeds to, to beat Rupert. It's this very, like, triumphant, triumphant uh, episode. Um, I was very triggered by it, but it's a vi- very triumphant uh, part of the episode, right? But in, in this scene that's getting played out, um, he gives this, like, monologue, this little mini monologue, Ted does, and he... F- frames the whole monologue with this phrase that he saw, and the phrase is, be curious, not judgmental. And he uses this phrase to to talk to to Rupert about how if, if Rupert had been curious rather than judgmental about who he was, then maybe he would have inquired how good he is at darts and what his expertise was. And he would not have just assumed um, that he was going to be better and he would win or lose. Um, but that phrase be curious, not judgmental, is something that has just wormed its way into my brain. Maybe it's because of the connection to my own story with Kendrick, that the scene stood out. Um, or maybe it's just a good phrase. I don't know. But it has been in my brain. And this past week, with finishing Ted Lasso, and preparing this sermon, and preparing the first sermon for this whole series that we're doing on the Old Testament this summer, this phrase has just kind of really been in my brain. And I've thought about it a lot. And uh, I think that there's really something that this phrase can speak to um, our faith about. I think that we're taught that our faith is really wound up in the concept of judgment. I think it's wound up in certainty. It's, round, it's wound up in this desire for objective truth. And I think that's good. I think that there's, I think that there's objective truth, like in who God is. We seek then apologetics and good arguments and logic and systematic theology. And we do these things just to prove its reality, to prove the reality of our our faith. And those things are really good and they prevent our faith from being just kind of a jumbled string of ideas in our brain. Um, But because of this, we can become extraordinarily one-track minded with the objective that we are going to find concrete truth so we can know it. Like we want to know the truth so we can have it and own it and then judge everything else around us. And I think this is precisely how we approach scripture a lot of the time. I think specifically we approach the Old Testament like this. We probably approach the New Testament like this too, but I think it's a little bit more conducive to this line of thinking. But when we approach the Old Testament with this objective of truth holding, what happens is that we get this idea of God. What we see when we do that in the Old Testament is that God is a God who detests people and is ready to exact punishment on them. And if we do that and we see that God, we have two options. We can either create a whole theology around that God, which seems harmful, or we can just avoid the Old Testament. And I think oftentimes that's what we do. We choose option B because, I mean, why wouldn't we? Like, I choose option B a lot of the times too. But I think we have another option here. Instead of approaching the Old Testament 
in search of more proof text, we approach it with curiosity while we kind of push this notion of judgment to the side, I think that the Old Testament can become a place of wonder and it can become a place where we see other people thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago grappling with the same muddy water, the same gray areas, the same darkness that we try and reconcile today in this world. And I think that that's really, really beautiful. Billy Collins, who's this American poet, he wrote this poem about um, his experience teaching poetry. And what he says about teaching poetry is, I think, exactly what we need to hear about ourselves when reading the Old Testament. The poem says, I ask them to take a poem. He's a professor. He's asking his students. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. And so often, this is us. So often, this is me. Taking scripture, and we tie it to a chair, and we beat a confession out of it. Let's not do that this summer. right? Let's be a church that instead takes scripture, and we hold it up to the light, and we turn it around. We take scripture, and we press our ear up against it, and we hear like the buzzing of it, and we walk around it, and we feel the walls, even though we are still in the dark. So what we're doing this summer is an entire series on the whole Old Testament, 12 weeks of the Old Testament. Uh, And we're not just doing an Old Testament series on Sunday. What we're also doing is there's a reading plan. Brandon has made this awesome reading plan that coincides with exactly what is going to be taught on Sundays. So some of our hubs are are already doing this, where they're going to read together the scripture in preparation for the Sunday teaching. Um, But if you're not in a hub, or if your hub isn't doing it, you can still do this. It's it's on redemptionhou.com. It has, these are both the verses. This week, the verses are Genesis 1 through 11. It has the chapters up there. It even, Brennan even split it into days. If you want to read a little bit every day, he has it split up um, for you to do that. So that's what we're going to do this summer. And why are we doing it? We're doing it because we want to see you suffer. Just kidding. Um, We're doing it kind of like what I hinted at already, because these texts are just rich. These texts are beautiful, um, but they often seem scary, understandably so. They're also hard to understand. Um, But we firmly believe that throughout the Old Testament, we see this continual picture of hope. This year is like our year of hope at the church, and we think that the Old Testament perfectly speaks to that. And so we're going to spend these 12 weeks moving from Genesis all the way through scriptures, all the way to the prophets. That's like the whole Old Testament. And we want to explore how hope is a string throughout all of our faith and all of our spiritual ancestors' faith. And so, if y'all are good church members, you read Genesis 1 through 11 this week in preparation for today. Um, If you didn't, 
shame on you. You can donate to the church to make up for it. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. So don't do that. But I'm just kidding. Um, we're doing Genesis 1 through 11 today. And in Genesis 1 through 11, this is kind of the macro overview of what we have. We have creation. There was nothing, and God created. Then there was the fall. And then humans are cast outside of the garden. So we have separation from God. Then these humans have children. They have sons, Cain and Abel. And we have a beautiful representation of brotherhood. I'm kidding. There's murder. (laughs) Um, So that's what we have. We have the fall, separation from God, and then we have a family torn apart and murder. And then today, we're picking up in chapter 6 with the flood. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so the story of the flood is chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 of Genesis, okay? Today, and we saw in the scriptures that Brandon read, we're going to kind of sit in chapter 6 and chapter 9, the beginning and the end of it. Chapter 6 can speak to why, the purpose of the flood, what's the deal. Chapter 7, the flood comes. Chapter 8, it recedes. Chapter 9 will then give us some sort of resolution, some sort of, like, what now? Maybe even, like, what was the point? So that's where we're going to sit, at the beginning and at the end of the flood. The story of the flood, of the flood, Noah's Ark, it's one of the most popular stories in the Bible. Um, even outside of the church, like, uh, the average American can give you a quick rundown of the story about Noah's Ark. When Steve Carell is an actor in a movie that's depicting this Bible story, it's a popular story. Shout out Evan Almighty, 2007. Um, but we kind of know it. We, got, we get the premise. God said the world was bad, there was something wrong with the world. He told Noah to build a boat because he's going to send a flood to destroy creation. Noah and his family and two of every animal were to be saved. They board the boat. Flood comes. Everything dies. And Noah and his family and the pairs of animals survive. That's the general plot of of what happens. We know this story well. It's actually one of the most taught stories to children, which is interesting because it's one of the least taught stories to adults. Um, It's very difficult to read, and so, like, we're really comfortable with children receiving stories about death and judgment, but for some reason, adults, I don't know, something to think about. Anyway... But it's hard. There's judgment. There's death to nearly all of creation. Uh, And it's all at the hand of God. What I will not be able to do today is quell every discomfort that you have with this story. Um, But that's okay, because what our motto for the summer is, when reading scripture, it's going to be, be curious, not judgmental. So it's okay. It's okay that we're not going to be able to beat a confession out of the flood narrative. Like, we're not going to be able to say, like, tell me why God did this. We're not going to do that today. What I do hope is that this morning I can bring just some new things to this narrative that we already really know so well. Some things that make us ponder and turn the story over and maybe see it in a new way here today and and once you leave. And the first thing I want to present this morning as a new consideration when reading the flood narrative is the fact that this story, the story of Noah, it's not the only ancient flood narrative. In fact, there were many, many flood narratives that circulated the ancient Near Eastern world. 
one of the most notable and the most similar to the biblical flood narrative is actually from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an ancient Mesopotamian source. So there are other stories circulating at this time, the same time that's happening, the Noah's Ark story circulating, that are about ancient floods. They are just with different, um, different societies. They're reflecting different societies. So uh, an example of this and kind of what the general gist is of a lot of them is there's a group of gods. They're poly- polytheistic societies. So there's a group of gods, and one decides to lead the others in uh, sending a flood, sending destruction. So we're going to send destruction and destroy everything. And it's usually for, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it was because the humans were loud and making a lot of noise and disrupting their sleep. And so they send a flood. But another god had mercy, felt pity on one of the humans, goes and tells the human, human makes a boat similar to Noah, has a boat, saves things, saves his family, um, flood comes, he survives. And then afterwards, the God who sent the flood is upset because a human survived, and he feels betrayed by one of the gods. And so it ends up being um, like a story almost about adversaries inside of divinity um, and about how people treat gods. It's it's just, it becomes a different story, and yet... It uses the same flood narrative structure. There's lots and lots of flood narratives that's happening in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, I don't know how you feel learning this. If you feel freaked out or anxious about it, I understand that. However, what I really want to emphasize is that the existence of other flood narratives does not delegitimize ours at all. In fact, I think it helps to legitimize ours. And I think it allows us to look at it with a different perspective. I think oftentimes what we struggle with as modern people is the idea that God destroyed creation through a flood. That premise is hard for us. Just that. However, that was not a difficult thing for the ancient people. It wasn't difficult. We know it wasn't difficult because many stories are circulating about this very thing. It was kind of an understood thing. And so I think that maybe there's a different thing that the story is trying to tell us. Maybe it's not trying to just tell us that God sent a flood because there's many stories that did that. I think what our Bible, what our scripture is trying to tell us is this is who our God is. And it's trying to distinctly talk about our God. Maybe the point isn't that the flood happened, but maybe the point is uh, it's a tool to reveal the distinctness of our God versus these other narratives gods that are being circulated. So I know our tendency is to ask, how can God do this? But that wasn't the question that this text or any other flood narrative was seeking to answer. So, in our curiosity, let's look at this text, not with our usual question, but maybe instead of that question, we say, who is this flood narrative saying that our God is? If you are interested in stuff like that, if you're freaked out by it, if you just want further conversation about it and teachings about things like this concept of other flood narratives and, like, different interpretation and stuff like that, well, don't worry, in the fall there's going to be a class on it. It's called Seriously Not Literally, and it'll just dive into just kind of this concept of a biblical interpretation. 
in, in, in taking scripture and figuring it out and taking different things like context and other literature that was there and that was present when this was written because that stuff matters. Um, so it'll be there. So we're not just going to leave you floundering in the water after hearing about something like this. But we're going to start, we're going to read chapter 6 and we're going to read it with a different question in our head. And instead of hearing this and asking like, how can this even exist and be a thing? Maybe we ask other questions. Who's our God in this? What's happening? How does God feel about it? What does the world look like right now? So we're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. This is what was the world that prompted the flood? What was happening that caused this flood that's going to come in chapter 7? Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the Son of God came in to the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, and crawling things, and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of humanity has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of people. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Okay. So, there's a lot of big, heavy things here. And a lot of trigger words, I think, too. Like destruction and wickedness. And, um, yeah, they're hard. So the first thing I kind of want to point out to frame the whole story is I want to point out that the only divine emotion, the only emotion that we see God have in this is sorrow. We often assume that God's emotions during the flood narrative are ones of anger, are ones of wrath. We pair that with the concept of destruction. So we assume that. However, the only divine emotion that's written is that God is sorry. God is grieved. God is sorrowful about the state of creation. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 that says this explicitly. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind who I have created from the face of the land, Mankind and animals as well, and crawling things and the birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. God is in mourning over the state of the world. Brenda talked about this premise a ton in the last Heaven and Hell series, but I'm going to say it again. God is not indifferent to the state of the world. And this story again confirms that. 
Our God was full of sorrow, and he grieved when he saw creation. And so let's remember that emotion, because that emotion is what, is what is pushing on the rest of the actions that we see throughout this. So that's one thing that we see in these, in these verses. God looked at earth and grieved. But what was it about creation that caused God to grieve? I think that there's three answers to this that we see in this, in this text. I think the first answer, we're very good at answering, why was God grieving? He was grieving because of humankind's corruption and evil intent and wickedness. Let's read uh, verses five and six again. Again, it says this explicitly. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Why was God grieving? God was grieving because of sin being present here. I think we usually nail this part of the story. The flood happened as a response to human sin. Um, I think there's two more reasons, though, that are completely directly linked to human sin. And I think that the second reason that Scripture is giving us right here that God was sorrowful when he saw creation was because it was full of violence. It was full of violence. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. It sets a scene of a violent world, which, by the way, let's just remember what's happened up to verses 1 through 4. It's the sin, separation from God, the first family, and then murder. And then right after that, we have a full chapter of genealogy. So we know generation after generation after generation after generation has passed. And what has happened is a perpetuation of violence that we now pick up in at the beginning of chapter 6. So that's what this is telling us. It's saying, hey, that murder that happened here, all this time passed and it grew. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. Um, I will say, before we do this, it's easy in verses 1 through 4. We see the Nephilim, and oh my goodness, aren't those fun to, to, to talk about? Like, they're these weird angel human things. Like, what do they mean? Um, like, the History Channel probably has, like, a weird alien documentary about them or something. Um, maybe movie club? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, all that to be said, there's a bunch of books about it. It's fun to think about and wonder about. And, like, we encourage Y'all, to go look into that. That is not on the docket this morning. Um, Y'all want to leave, so (laughs) y'all don't want to have to stay here for six hours. So that's not the important part of these verses for for our purpose this morning. The important part is this phrase, saw and take. This is like a linguistic pattern that we see in the Old Testament where someone or something sees something that stirs some sort of desire in them and they take it for themselves. And usually it's also implying that there's power being exerted in the taking. The thing is like not offering itself. It's a taking. And the thing that's being taken, it satisfying the person who's taking's desire, it's not what it was made for. It's not like it's a starving man who like sees a loaf of bread and says he saw the bread and took it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea that someone saw something that wasn't for them that they were attracted to, and they took it for themselves. So, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 again, and like, look for that. Verse 1. Now it came about when mankind began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, 
whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. God's response to seeing this is saying, Humans need to live for a shorter amount of time. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind and they bore children to them. And those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The setting for the flood narrative immediately begins with the taking and the possessing and the using of humans to satisfy one's desire. That's the setting for all of this. That's what the world's looking like. Now let's look in verses 11 through 13. In this, God identifies the world as full of violence explicitly. Explicitly. Verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of humanity has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. Because of people. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. What we see in verses 13, or in uh, these verses in like 11 through 13, and, and really in all the 13 verses, is a world that had been filled with violence. Human sin was the problem, but its fruit was violence. And oftentimes we can see sin as an arbitrary transgression with like no harm, just like breaking one of God's rules. I think like anyone who deals with children has this idea in their head too about like you make these rules and then the kid breaks the rule and you're like, well, there wasn't really any harm in that. And so what does that mean? And like, I think about this all the time as a teacher. That's not really what we're talking about when we think about sin and about transgression of stuff. Like it, there's, there's practical harm that is happening from sin. And that's what this is telling us. The issue was not simply that there was sin. It was that sin was producing violence on the, war, in the, on the earth. And the earth was full of violence. And the last reason that I think God grieved when he saw earth. He grieved because he saw sin that was causing violence to fill the earth. And I think he also grieved because his good creation was ruined. I want to read verses 11 through 13 again, but I want to change one thing when I read it. Um, in English, we miss the prevalence of the Hebrew word shechat. Okay? This word shechat means to ruin. Um, it's also translated as to corrupt, decay, soil. It gives that idea that there was an intent for a thing and then something happened to that thing and it can no longer satisfy the intent. Right? It's ruined. It's messed up now. And in these verses, in 11 through 13, that word is used four times. It's a lot of times to be repeated. And so when I read this, I think that we have a lot of baggage with words like corrupt and words like destroy. And so I want to, instead of reading corrupt and destroy, which it says corrupt three times, destroy once, all of those I'm going to replace with the word ruin. Um, Old Testament scholar Matthew Lynch does this, and I think it's super helpful. So let's look at these verses again. Verse 11, this is the culmination of what God saw and felt um, when he looked at the earth. Now the earth was ruined in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was ruined, for humanity had ruined its way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, 
The end of humanity has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I am about to ruin them with the earth. Verse 12 here, it's important to note, it's a direct inversion of Genesis 131. Genesis 131 is the end of this creation story where God is looking at things and saying that they're good. So God finishes all of creation. He looks at it, and this is what we we see in Scripture. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's an intent. There's an intent for creation. That's what it was. It was very good. Now fast forward five chapters, and in verse 12 we see God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was ruined. It was very good, and then it was ruined. The flood did not happen simply because God saw humans sinning and said they deserve to die. The issue is that there was an intention for creation. God created something good, something very good, and then that creation was ruined. And so, how does a good creator respond to a ruined creation? That's what the rest of the story is telling us. Um, A a potter who at their wheel has a piece of clay that is full of holes and air bubbles. And it's like, imagine it's spinning and it's just flapping around out of control all over the place, right? When a potter sees that, what they do is they take that clay and they return it back into a ball of useful formlessness for it to then again be recreated. I think this analogy best represents what God is doing here. This is not a story about God destroying creation. It's a story about God seeing that creation had been destroyed. And so, in response to a creation that had been destroyed, had been ruined... God sends a flood to return creation, just like the potter at a wheel, back to useful formlessness. I think we could end there. I think that's already a a pretty good sermon. But but I want to close with one more more point here. because, and also, the story doesn't end here. There's, there's, there's a real conclusion to this story. Um, and that is that the flood is a story of God seeing a ruined creation, seeing that his creation was destroyed, and responding by setting forth hope. Responding to ruin and setting forth hope. Like a good potter does not stop once the clay has been gathered back into a ball, so too God did not leave creation as just a slate wiped clean. God sends a flood. The waters rise for days and days, turns into months and months. And then eventually, God also sends a wind to blow across the waters, and the waters recede, and the lands dry up, and Noah and his family exit the boat in this new empty, formless recreation. God's first response now in his recreation is to go to his people and to enter into a binding relationship with them. God's first response is to make a covenant with Noah and every living thing for the rest of eternity. 
Um, a covenant is a deeply relational bond. A marriage is a type of covenant. And this type of deep relationship and commitment with all of creation is what God's first response is in this story of recreation. Let's read verses 8 through 17. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself am establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every animal of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, every animal of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, And all flesh shall never again be eliminated by the waters of a flood, nor shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall serve as a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about... When I make a cloud appear over the earth, that the rainbow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the rainbow is in the cloud, then I will look at it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What better sign um, for God's hope in this world than his covenant being symbolized by like a rainbow after a storm? Um, it's, it's kind of on the nose, honestly, maybe a little cheesy. Um, but, you know, God said it first. And that's what we're told, that is as a rainbow continues to appear after the floodwaters, right? As this continues to happen, God's binding relationship with creation continues to persist. This story of the flood is meant to be one of hope. The conclusion is eternal hope. It's covenant and relationship with God for every living thing for forever. That's what is said here. When you look at the structure of the flood narrative and you see how God moved throughout it, you see that God saw violence and in turn provided eternal hope through relationship with him. The story of the flood is this story of recreation. Um, We see it in how the language in chapter 9 patterns out of Genesis 1. Again, if I had more hours, I would talk about it, right? It uses language like be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and reign and rule. It uses all of this language that speaks to how God created the world. Now, after the flood, as he is recreating the world. This is meant to be a second creation in a world where there now is sin, unlike in the garden. The original creation story told us that from nothing, God will bring forth life and perfect creation. That's what our original creation story told us. And through this second recreation story, we're told that from a place of violence and death and ruin, God like an excellent potter, will bring forth life through relationship with him. God gave us hope for the eternity 
of creation's existence with this flood narrative. Amidst all of the death and the violence and sin and struggle and harm and tragedy and darkness, amidst that, God in this story speaks to, I see it and I am committed to it. I'm bound to it. I'm bound to you in it. That is hope. That is hope always. God has given us hope because he has entered into relationship with all of creation. And God has bound God's self to creation forever. That is the story of the flood. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.